Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am very excited today to have on the podcast um, Professor Steve Stephen Maisie, who I'm going to call Steve because I consider him a friend, even though we really have never met in person. Um, he is a professor of political science um, at Bard Early College. He is the Supreme Court correspondent for The Economist, and I read his stuff anytime that he writes. He has a BA from Harvard, a PhD from the University of Michigan in political science, which we're going to talk about a little later on, and, in, and he's written a book called American Justice 2015, the, uh, the dramatic tenth, the, the dramatic tenth term of the Roberts Court. Though I must say that seems kind of pale Wait. these days. Um, yeah. Steve, thanks for coming on. Eric, it's great to be on. Thank you for having me. I've I've admired you and your writing for a long time, and I've been teaching parts of your first book for a while. So well, something for us to talk about. I, I do want to say something personal about that. Um, you have been a huge supporter of mine, even at my most controversial, even when you disagree, which is fair. Um, you've been a, I, I take a lot of solace from the fact that you take my work seriously, and I really appreciate that uh, more than you know. So thank you for that. All right, let's oh. talk about you. Um, first, it's, we're taping this on um, Tuesday, 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 um, and it'll probably come out Friday. We, we're still recovering from the leak of the um, draft opinion in Roe. When you first saw it, what do you think as a, as a reporter? I'm going to call you a reporter, correspondent. What do you think about the actual leak, the merits of the opinion, whole thing? Go. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, a, a week ago, Monday night, I get, well, as I'm preparing our seven-year-old for bed, I get this notice on my phone from one of my editors at The Economist forwarding an article, Supreme Court, votes to overrule Roe versus Wade. And I, I actually laugh, right? Because <laughs> Supreme Court opinions don't come out at 8 o'clock at night on a Monday. Well, they do in the shadow docket, but sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yes, but I would have gotten a notice from the court about that directly. Um, so I click on the link, and I'm very dubious. And then I see that Josh Gerstein wrote this article. And Josh is a friend. We worked in our college newspaper together. And so I start to get worried. And then I click on the link provided in the first paragraph of his story to the draft opinion. And lo and behold, uh, it looks like a duck. It quacks like a duck. It sounds just like a Samuel Alito opinion. <laughs> and wow, I was, um, it was flabbergasting. And it took me, I think we're still trying to wrap our heads around it. But the next morning when I came in to teach my students, we were in the, we are still in the reproductive rights unit. And the week before, I had taught Roe versus Wade and then the Casey decisions. And I appeared before my students and I had told them the previous week, you know, it's possible this is the last time I'm teaching Roe and Casey as good law. This, this might be the history of Supreme Court decisions next year. And so I, as I was making reference to that a week later, following this Dobbs leak, I got really choked up. I had to pause and collect myself. I'm looking out over uh, my students, a lot of young women who are going off to school next year in states where they may have no reproductive rights. And I got choked up. Yeah. Um, and still, you know, it, it's a week later and we're trying to process it. Uh, it's powerful. Wow. It's powerful. Um, can I ask you a, a question? As a, So I've had on this podcast before... Adam Liptak, Dahlia Lithwick, um, a few other journalists. I, um, I, I don't consider myself knowledgeable about journalism. You're a correspondent for The Economist. 
if you had received this leaked opinion, which before we knew was authentic, I said, if it's a forgery, it's the best forgery in U.S. history, because it sounded yes. just like an opinion Samuel Alito would write, obviously. But if you had gotten this from some credible source, what's your next step? Can I ask that question? Because I don't know. Like, what? So Josh, and I don't, I don't want to speak for Josh. Gerstein. Yeah. He gets it. What's yeah. the next step? This is these are uncharted waters. We don't get leaks like those. <laughs> um, Joan Biskupic gets some yeah. after the fact, or sometimes I guess in, during a term, but this has never happened before, right? So, right. I guess if I'm Josh Gerstein, I go right to my most trusted editor and say, you know, this is what just landed in my lap, and talk to them about what to do next. I, I, um, I oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. How to you would want to authenticate it, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I would read the whole thing, searching for any telltale signs that the forgery might have lapsed at a certain point. But after getting to the end, I would have concluded this is a Sam Alito draft. And then the question is, how do we handle it? When it first came out, I tweeted something that got a lot of you know notice, which was this is either the biggest leak in Supreme Court history, though I'm not sure that's true because there's a Dred Scott leak, but let's leave that aside. This is either the biggest leak in Supreme Court history or Politico is done. Do you think that is fair? If, if, if the next day Roberts had produced conclusive proof or, or almost conclusive proof that this was absolutely a well-organized forgery, could Politico have recovered from that? I think Politico probably could, but the reporters who published that right. claim under their names... I don't think they would have been finished, but I think it would have been a big blow okay. um, to claim something that big and have it be wrong. Okay. I want to ask you about your emotional reaction, Steve, if that's okay. Um, and again, here are two men talking about abortion, something I'm always... But I have three daughters. You have... I have three daughters. You have three. So there's six daughters between us. Yeah. Um, so we care a lot. And I, 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 you know, I, I think we have a right to talk about it. Um, we have different views about Roe, but here's my question for you. I think the understated um, part of all of this that I'm starting to write on now, but I can't find the right words. Maybe, maybe you can help me because you're a words guy. Um, Roe was not, to me, Roe, Roe was not just about abortion. I remember my mother in 1971, I was 13, having consciousness-raising meetings you know, before Roe, saying without abortion, we can't be equal, period, full stop, we have to fight for this. And then Roe comes around, and for generations of women, it's not just about abortion. It's about equality. It's about being noticed. It's about all of those things. And Alito's opinion had zero empathy for any of that. And I'm not even sure the final opinion is going to have any empathy for any of that. Is that something that's making you upset? Because I know it's making me upset. We just talked about it in my class last period. It's an issue of a complete absence of women and their interest in the opinion. For all of the flaws of, of Roe versus Wade, there was some balance in that decision, right? Mm -hmm. There was the woman's right to choose to have an abortion, and there, there was the state's interest in fetal life. And how are we going to balance that? You can argue that the legislative-looking um, holding was not appropriate for a court to issue. But at least there was recognition that there are competing values here. There is some interest in a fetus's right um, among people who care to vote people into office in certain states. 
And that interest in fetal life has to be put against, has to be balanced against, uh, in some way, a woman's right to choose to control her body and whether to have a baby. There's nothing like that in Sam Alito's opinion. Right. There's just, right, there's that paragraph near the end where he says, you know, what effect this will have on the country and on the society and on the political system, let the chips fall where they may. That's not our job. We just have to decide what the Constitution means, damn it, and implement it. <laughs> um, that seems uh, entirely uh, cold-hearted and also dangerous for the Supreme Court as an institution. Uh, on my podcast, I am constitutionally required to uh, mention Richard Posner at least once. So um, I'm going to mention him now. Let's do it again. Um, the chips will fall where they may is not our concern. Might be the most anti-Posnerian statement by a judge in the history of judging. Um, and Alito doesn't believe it. He, I, I don't, I'm sorry. I just don't think he believes that. He knows that consequences matter. He knows facts on the ground matter. He knows what he does matters. And it's just a smokescreen for value judgments. Am I off on that? Well, if your ears were ringing last Friday, it's because a student um, praised you okay. in a particular way that's going to make you happy right now. <laughs> so as you know, I assign a couple chapters of your book early in the term. And we had a range of views as to whether students think the Supreme Court is a court and the justices are judges or not. But a student, as we were reflecting on this Dobbs draft, uh, he said, you know, a lot of people were criticizing Eric Siegel a few weeks ago, but look what's about to happen. We have a Supreme Court that is about to renege on Roe versus Wade and half a century of abortion precedents because they can, because they have certain values and there are now enough of them that they can make this happen. And that's exactly what Siegel was warning us about. It makes me happy. So you have one convert there. Well, Maybe it, more. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't. It makes me happy that he rec that he or she recognizes it. It doesn't make me happy. That's the state of affairs. Because I was, you know, I would like that state of affairs to end. But thank you. I appreciate. I appreciate that. Um, one thing you said about Roe, I want to maybe push back on just a touch. I, I don't think you're going to disagree. I wrote a piece from Dorf on Law once about how how it's a myth. I, I write about myths. You know, it's a myth that Roe is an outlier. It's not. Now, obviously, it's an outlier in terms of effect politics, elections, political parties, all that non-law stuff. The Supreme Court issues decisions like that every single term where it's very rigid and they make up rules, and especially in criminal procedure, which I'm not an expert on. But my mm. understanding is they just made up numbers, like you need 48 hours for this and 72 hours for that. You know, um, All of 11th Amendment law is distinctions that are just made up crazy, arbitrary distinctions. I don't think Roe is an outlier in that sense. Do you agree with that? Hmm. I think that's a good point. Maybe what disturbs people most about that opinion is how after, after splicing up the, after dividing up the three trimesters and the different rules for each, um, Justice Blackman says, okay, now let us summarize. And he numbers the points, one, two, three. Right. I think it's the form of that summary of what the rules are that made it maybe look a little different from other Supreme Court opinions. So one last uh, question. I think oh. you're right. I'm sorry. One last question about the leak and row, and then we'll move on and make this lighter because I, I can feel your sadness. I, I, I you know, I, I'm sad about abortion. Whether I'm sad about row or not is a harder question, but I'm very sad about what abortion is going to look like. Um, 
But, but here's my question, and it's really a perplexing one to me. When I think it was whole women's health was being argued, and so we didn't know what was going to happen then with abortion. And everybody kept talking about, are they going to reverse Roe and so on. So I kept yelling on Twitter and on Facebook and in podcasts and Mike's blog and a lot of places, why are we talking about Roe? Roe has not been the law of this country since 1992. It just hasn't been. We should be discussing and debating Casey. And that goes back to, I think, my idea that Roe is symbolic of so many things. But in reality, it's not about Roe. It's about Casey. Isn't that right? I think that's right. I think usually people say Roe slash Casey, which is probably about right. You might disagree with it, but... Casey's central holding is that the central holding of Roe is maintained. Right. Right. And so the trimester approach is dispatched with, but viability is retained, which really was the central pivot in Roe also. Right. So I don't think it's um, I don't think it's unfair or unreasonable to say that Roe is still uh, part of the conversation when we're asking, is Casey going to be upheld? It's really the regime that Roe began and Casey continued, although with um, some whittling away and some change of emphasis. That's fair. That's fair. All right. Let's leave that behind for a minute and have a more fun conversation. Um, so I, I'm very curious how you – I, I like these podcasts to be somewhat personal in some way just because I think that's, that's a nice break from doctrine and politics. Um, how did you become a correspondent for The Economist? Which, by the way, sounds like one of the great – I mean, I, again, I have tremendous respect for Adam at The New York Times – for Robert Barnes at um, the Washington Post. I've had both of them, George State. Dolly, I think, is the best writer. Sorry, but the best writer of any. Oh, she is. Yeah, okay. Sorry, I don't mean yeah. to insult, but I think she's amazing. Um, but as far as, you know, prestige go, b- being a correspondent for The Economist, which I think is still is a real journalistic place, is a serious thing. How did it happen? Do you like it? What does it entail? <laughs> Tell me the whole story. Okay. All right. I'll try to keep it short because there are a few different um, twists and turns. But I consider myself extremely lucky that I landed here. It sort of happened by happenstance. Um, I guess the first trigger was I wrote a piece for The New York Times in 2011 about Occupy Wall Street. And um, a critique of my piece appeared by Will Wilkinson on a website called BigThink.com. And I was, I'd never heard of Big Think. I checked it out. I read his piece and I responded there. And that turned into a regular blog title on Big Think for a couple of years. And Will Wilkinson, um, who's a very smart and, um, and talented writer and thinker, was also writing for The Economist at the time. So I had a post one day I thought might work well there. And I published it. I published a few more. And then I was interested in one particular Supreme Court case that was coming up for argument in 2013, um, Town of Greece versus Galloway, a great establishment clause case. So I wrote three or four posts for The Economist about it. And then I thought, huh, maybe I should, you know, be bold (laughs) and ask the editor if I can go cover the oral argument. I'd never set foot inside the Supreme Court before. And so Robert Guest, the U.S. editor, to his credit, (laughs) he said, sure, um, let's try this out, go down there and write me an article. So um, if you want the best possible or worst possible case of of imposter syndrome, um, (laughs) 
go to the Supreme Court as a journalist covering your Supreme, your first Supreme Court <laughs> argument. Um, when I walked in there, just when the guard looked at me, asking me who I was, I said, I'm with the press. And I thought, I, you know, <laughs> I pulled over on him. Well, um, I ended up at the court that morning um, thinking, both mistakenly and hilariously, that if I got there earlier, I'd get a better seat. <laughs> so I got there at 730 in the morning before any reporter was there, before even the Supreme Court staff was there and waited. And <laughs> I ended up getting a good seat and I ended up meeting a lot of these wonderful people you just mentioned. Yeah. I met Dahlia that day. I met Adam, uh, Jess Braven at the Wall Street Journal, um, Garrett Epps, who's mm -hmm. just a wonderful guy and a terrific writer. And they showed me the ropes and I was overawed by this oral argument. I went down to the press room. I wrote a story. Uh, and my editor liked it. He said, let's do this again. I went back a few more times that term and they said, all right, you're the Supreme Court correspondent now. And I'm finishing my ninth term covering the court. That, I've learned a ton and it's been just fascinating at every turn. That's terrific. That's a great story. Um, so I, I did have a conference at Georgia State in 2016 where Dahlia, Adam and Robert Barnes were here. And I got the impression from the three of them and I know Garrett is part of that group as well. Um, I know you are too. Um, so pre-COVID, I got the sense you guys were pretty tight, and it was a and it was kind of let's be let's be honest. You know, I don't know about Adam and Robert's politics, but I, I think most of you are either liberal or center liberal or whatever. I think you all do a great job keeping that out. But that's I mean, you know what Dahlia's politics are. That's the, they don't, she doesn't hide them. Um, but anyway, it was a close club, and it was nice, and it was camaraderie, and it was friendship. Even though, even though, and I was amazed by Adam and Robert. So that's the New York Times and the Washington Post that compete with each other directly, right? I mean, but they were, they seemed like really good friends and close and helping each other out and they retreat each other's stuff. Is it still like that post-COVID? Oh, yeah. Good. Um, good. I miss being in the press room. Yeah. I learned so much just in those first few cases in the first couple of years, because the way it works, you come down after the argument and you try to sort out what just happened. You know, what the <laughs> hell just happened? Right. And it's a relatively small space. The cubicles that the um, that the reporters have are, you know, right next to each other. And they're like two by three. And so everyone's talking and trying to figure out what happened. And I'm listening and I'm learning. <laughs> um, and then after I learned enough, I started contributing my own voice. Uh, but it's it's a very uh, tight and smart and um, kind group of people that I just sort of stumbled into and they received me with open arms and not a lot of skepticism. So I'm going to ask you the same question I've asked them. And I've gotten similar but not totally identical answers from all from two of them, three of them, actually, all three, three of them. Hmm. Um, you know, if, if, you if you cover the president, you go to his press conferences. And if you cover a senator, you know, for like the, from, for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my you know, Atlanta here, if you cover, you know, a Georgia senator, you get press conferences, you even get interviews sometimes and all that stuff. You never get to talk to the justices, ever. Does, I mean, maybe at a dinner at the Federal Society or ACS. But even then, they're not going to talk to the reporters. Um, doesn't that make it much harder? I don't think so, because all the materials you need are right there on the Supreme Court website. Yeah. Um, sometimes it pays to talk to the people who are the litigants in the case um, or to talk to law professors about areas of the law I don't know anything about. Mm -hmm. uh, but to talk, you don't need to talk to the justices. They speak for themselves uh, in their opinions and in the oral arguments. And one of the big uh, 
tricks is, you know, as I just said, trying to figure out what happened in the oral argument. Who is fainting this way? Who's fainting that way? Right. Uh, and uh, who, are, who are the key justices we need to figure out what's going through their heads and how do we parse that? Um, I, uh, I've talked to a couple of the justices, not formally, but uh, Justice Breyer was kind enough after I reviewed his 2016 book Right. To give me a call and invite me to his book party. Nice. Um, in incredibly warm and flattering. Uh, and that was uh, that was an exciting Can experience. I ask you if he's as talkative in person as he is? He on... is, yes. And he <laughs> smiles even more. He, he has a good time and he's extremely warm. Um, and yeah. he was very kind to me. I think we can all say a lot of things about Justice Breyer. And there's a lot of things I could say that are negative. I won't today. But. He seems like a really decent human being. Incredibly. Yeah. Incredibly. Yeah. That, yes. He that, is a, a mensch of the highest order. Yeah. That's what it seems like. I, yeah. Okay. A um, couple more questions about this role. Uh, so when Adam was here, he, we talked at length about a particular conflict, which is that you – and, and maybe this has changed or maybe I had this – well, now it's different because of the audio. But, but what, what he was saying at the time was if you sit in the courtroom – to hear the arguments, you're not allowed any electronics, right? So you can't you can't write anything while you're there. There is a room for you guys and, and women, men and women, reporters, um, where you can hear it, right? Even before it was live streamed, you guys could hear it at the Supreme Court, but then you're not watching it. And because of social media changes in 2005 or three or eight or whenever it happened, getting it first is really important and that's a tension because if you're in the room, you can't get it first. If you're outside the room, you can get it first. Has this come? Is this a thing for you? Is this something you've thought about? It hasn't been because, well, they only started live streaming cases when they uh, retreated to their homes during right. COVID. Right. So we would still be the first ones to tweet out impressions of the oral arguments in the old days, meaning up until March 2020. Oh, I'm sorry, Steve. I think, I think what yes. Adam was saying was some reporters would not be in the courtroom so they could be first because they could be typing during the argument. Oh, for orders. Yeah. Right. For orders. And if there are decisions being read out yes. from the bench. That's that what day. I meant. Right. Yes. So some of the sorry. hard path reporters would stay back, yeah. hear what the opinions are, and then come up for the oral arguments. Yeah. Yeah. No, I... Um, I never stayed back. I wanted to be there. If I'm coming down to D.C., I'm coming down right. um, to hear the oral argument and the whole thing and pay as much attention as possible. So I, so we didn't, as I've said before on this, I usually send a rough roadmap to my guests, and then we sometimes veer away and stuff. And I didn't say I was going to ask you this question, so I'm improvising. But um, is there one oral argument that you love the most and one that you hated the most? Ah. Um, well, the first one made a big impression on me sure. and Justice Kagan's first question. So the town of Greece versus Galloway, this was an establishment clause case asking Wait, I'm whether... sorry, the establishment clause, what's that? I, I don't, what, what, <laughs> what do you mean by this establishment clause thing? Sorry. Yeah, it was already <laughs> fraying in 2013. There's not so much left of it. And by the end of June, I'm not sure what it'll mean other than that yeah. you can't coerce people, um, which is really what the free exercise clause says, but we can... Leave that discussion for another time. <laughs> so this was a case involving um, a town board in the little town of Greece in upstate New York um, that started every town board meeting every month with a prayer. And Justice Kagan, you know, in interrogating 
whether this is okay under the Constitution. The first question was, would it be okay if, you know, um, the marshal of the court began every oral argument up here at the Supreme Court with, you know, not just God save the United States in this honorable court, but, um, you know, we died, uh, Christ died for our sins, and, you know, very specifically sectarian Christian prayers, which is what was happening um, at, at the town board meetings. And I was just so struck by the way she, and this was before lawyers had two minutes uninterrupted to make their case. Right. I think she was um, on the lawyer within 15 seconds. <laughs> so I was fascinated by the issues in the case, but also by the sort of intellectual um, jousting and very quick thinking that both the justices and the lawyers show. Um, favorite case must be Obergefell. Mm-hmm. I mean, witnessing that moment when, you know, we weren't sure what Justice Kennedy was going to do. I was he sure. Authored... <laughs> you, you were sure? I was sure. Yeah, I was. I was. Well, I said so publicly. Some, people, I, I some was. people were not sure. He had authored all these other gay rights decisions. But was he going to take that other step, that final step? And the first question out of his mouth, he's emoting about the word millennia. He said, millennia keeps coming back to my mind that marriage has been between one man and one woman for millennia. And who are we, you know, a few lawyers to change that definition? Uh, there was a gasp in the courtroom. There was everyone was like waiting on his every word because everyone knew it depended on him. But watching the lawyer for uh, Michigan disintegrate under questioning from the four liberal justices was incredibly exciting. Like watching the, not watching him disintegrate, but watching uh, the case he was making for allowing states to continue to ban same-sex marriage. Uh, It did not withstand rational argument. And you could see that being demonstrated in in real time in a way that just comparing briefs, you know, it doesn't happen. Uh, but when you're trying to defend orally a position that doesn't hold water and you have four very prepared, very smart people exposing that, that was exciting. Um, least favorite oral argument? I mean, there are other times when lawyers don't do a good job and, it's, um, and you feel you know, it's sort of cringy. You feel bad for them. Right. Um, I don't have a specific, I don't want to call out any particular lawyer in a particular <laughs> case. Um, but there are some cases that, and this is where I know we don't, you want to talk about cameras in the courtroom, which yeah. I do think are a good idea. Thank you. <laughs> but I think the question is also how many cameras and what angles mm-hmm. would you would you choose? Because just folk, just having a single camera on the entire proceeding of the lawyer arguing in the nine justices wouldn't give you enough detail to really show you what's on their minds and what they're thinking. So I remember there was one case not a lot of people attended. It was right after the DACA argument. And I stayed because I wanted to watch Steve Vladek argue Hernandez versus Mesa. Steve's awesome. Steve's awesome. He, he was on my podcast two weeks ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's, he's amazing. And I wanted to watch that. And I got a front row seat for it. And one thing I noticed, which you would not notice even if there were cameras in the courtroom, I think, Justice Gorsuch was silent during the entire argument. And... You know, Steve Vladek knew he needed Gorsuch, and Gorsuch knew that Steve needed Gorsuch. <laughs> and he didn't ask a single question, but it wasn't just that. 
it wasn't his, just his silence. It was his the look on his face. He had a nasty <laughs> expression on his face. He didn't make eye contact. He did not look Steve Vladek in the eyes once. And I thought, oh boy, this is not good for him, for Vladek's case. And so there were things that um, cameras in the courtroom probably would not pick up, which are important to the proceeding. Yes. Yes. I think so very strong. I don't know how many, you know, cameramen you can fit into that rather small courtroom to get all the various angles. Well, I'm the least technical person alive. This podcast is run by my tech support, Bobby. But I will say it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to have one camera on the lawyer and one camera on whichever justice is asking the questions and just leave it at that. I suppose so. And just leave it at that. Steve, I want to say something about um, Obergefell and the same-sex marriage case, if you don't mind. And I'm breaking my rule here. I'm mentioning Posner twice. Um, I was in the Seventh Circuit courtroom um, Mm. when Posner heard the, 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 the... same-sex marriage case, and um, and I talked to him afterwards about it, um, and um, he was he kept pressing one point that the lawyers had no answer to, and it was so obvious they had no answers to it. And if anyone who was on the fence on this issue had heard that exchange, or excuse me, seen that exchange, it would have made a difference. I th- I think it was two of the three states at issue allowed gay couples to adopt children. I don't think it was all three. I could be wrong about that, but I think Hmm. whatever it was, the question was, in your states, or at least two of the three, you allow gay people to adopt children. And Posner said, but they can't marry. So these kids go to school, and they're teased, and they're abused, and they can't say their parents are married. Why would you let them adopt children, but not let them get married? And and the lawyer had no answer, and and it, I know Posner is much harsher than um, Kagan in our argument. So um, it, it disintegrated quickly, but but Posner was right, I think. I mean, uh, you know, it, 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 and 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 then they tried to rebuild an argument about traditional marriage, and it was clear it, it just wasn't working. And and I I don't think our arguments are that important, but I think in the really big cases maybe they are, and that's why I really want to see them on see the whole thing. I want to see the whole perspective. Yeah, it would be great. I mean, it's a it's a big advance that now um, arguments are live streamed yep. so everyone can yep. hear them in real time. I think yep. that's that's a very big step. It would be an additional step to have cameras in the courtroom yep. and I'm all for it. I don't think there's any good reason not to have them, just like there's no good reason not to have same-sex marriage being illegal. <laughs> It's interesting to me, because since I've been talking about this issue for 25 years, I've seen a lot of evolution on this. I'm pretty sure folks like Adam and Robert 20 years ago were probably against this. Um, I know for a fact conservative law professors like Randy Barnett, who I asked, and others were against this really strongly for, for, for most of 2000 to 2010 and even after 2010. Hmm. And now I don't think Randy's changed his mind, but I think most conservative law professors have changed their mind. And I think they say, yeah, let's just see it. You know, it's not, or at least, or at least uh, enough have changed their mind where I've noticed the difference. Same thing with term limits, which is what I wanted to ask you about next. Hmm. Um, people used to be ab- unalterably opposed to changing term limits to life. T- and when I started law school in 1991, I mean, teaching law school, <laughs> virtually nobody uh, wanted to end term limits. I think now there's a – I know it's hard to get from here to there, but there's a huge consensus about it. Do you think there's a consensus about that? I think there's a consensus that they would be a good idea if yeah. there's a way to get them uh, to happen. Right. 
Um, the Biden commission, you know, looked at that question. It's been debated whether you would need a constitutional amendment or not. I haven't studied that question enough to right. really comment on it, but right. um, I've read enough to know that there would at least be a question as to the constitutionality of a term limit, which would then likely end up in the justice's own laps, which, you know, is not a situation that is terrific of the justices determining if they um, have life tenure or not. Um, you know, the alternative is a constitutional amendment, which uh, is totally implausible um, right. at present or in, in the near future. Right. So um, I, th I think it's, it's a flaw in the system that's just a very difficult one to extract. I apologize for podcast malpractice. I meant to say at the very beginning that everything you're expressing here today is your view, not the views of The Economist. I'm sorry. I, Thank you. I, that I, is true. Yes. I, I, I should have said that at the very beginning. I actually want to drill down for a minute on the Greece versus New York case. And then I sure. want to tie it to the fact that you have a PhD in political science, which some law professors do. Like my, my colleague, Anthony Christ, has a PhD in political science. But very few, you know, not, yeah. not, not enough, I think, um, in one sense. But here's what I, and this is why I want to tie all of this together. And, and, and I think the audience for this podcast is mostly lawyers and law professors. There are some people who are not. I apologize to them if this gets into the weeds a little bit. Justice Kennedy, who everyone knew was the deciding vote in the case you're talking about in Greece, New York, um, he wrote the opinion in, in Lee versus Weissman many years ago, holding unconstitutional graduation, uh, prayers of graduation ceremonies. And he said they were coercive because even though students didn't have to go to graduation and even though they didn't have to stand for the prayer, they could leave before the prayer, the whole event was just a kind of coercion that we don't want to put, you know, kids through. And, of course, Scalia attacked him for that viciously. Um, now, jump ahead, and that's to, I don't know when that, 1992. That's Mike Dorff's term. Right, 1992. That's when Mike Dorff was, was cooking for Kennedy. Ah. Uh, yeah, the KCN leave versus Weissman. Same term. Mike, Mike had quite an experience, I think. He won't that's talk a big it. one. Yeah, but anyway. Now, jump ahead to Greece. It turns out that schools in the area had a mandatory visit the legislature day where these students had to go. They had no, you know, other than an excused absence, they had, it was coercive. They had to go. And uh, other than excused absence. And they didn't have to stand or anything, but they had to hear this prayer. And in that case, Kennedy said that's not coercive. Even though Lee versus Weissman, I believe, was non-denominational prayers, and Greece was purely Christian prayers for two years. What all of that is leading to <laughs> is if a law professor is analyzing those two cases, they're not going to drill down on Kennedy's inconsistency in any kind of way reflecting on Kennedy's personal values. They're going to try to do it by law. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a way to distinguish those two cases under Kennedy's own opinion in Lee versus Weissman. As a political science major, wouldn't you be interested in what factors led Kennedy to decide those two cases differently? And shouldn't we all be interested in those factors? Yes. Um, I'll series of good questions. <laughs> My recollection from Greece versus Galloway was that it was an option that students could go as part of their civics project to the town board meeting, but it wasn't required. 
So it was one of several possibilities where they could fulfill that credit. Oh, they could pick one of um, several things. Maybe that's right. I okay. think so. Okay. Right. But the fact is there were some students there. So they weren't required to go. But once they were there, they were listening to a prayer. Right. So it did seem pretty similar yeah. to Lee versus Wiseman and the situation with a high school graduation and a, and a middle school one. Um, I mean, you could say that, you know, as as worrisome as prayer at a high school graduation is, it's ceremonial. It's uh, you can you can listen or not. You can tune out or not. Um, you're just there to sit and get your diploma at a town board meeting. The reason to go to a town board meeting might be to witness, you know, what's happening and where a speed bump is being installed and what the new zoning regulations are. But more likely you're there because you want something. Right. You're there because you're pleading with this with the town board right. uh, for a variance in zoning or something. Yeah. And so it's you could argue that it's much more coercive, albeit for adults, not children. Right. And, and the history of all these opinions cares much more or until this point, we'll see in the Kennedy versus Bremerton uh, case, but has cared more about children being coerced uh, than adults. But for adults, I think that was a real concern that Kennedy didn't really uh, worry about enough. My, my guess is, is my, my total guess is that he knows he's very familiar with graduation ceremonies and knows almost nothing about town board meetings. <laughs> um, That's probably right. Do you think your political science degree is helpful in studying and analyzing and talking and writing, most importantly, writing about the court? It really is. I mean, the... The implication of your last question, I think, is any good political scientist would try to look to um, factors in Justice Kennedy's uh, personal commitments that might indicate why he would vote one way in one case and another way in another case that don't have doctrinal distinctions built into them. Um, the irony is that when I was doing my doctoral work um, in political science, I was much less on the sciencey side. I was not so interested in judicial behavior, right? I sort of even scoffed at those who were just trying to predict what a judge is going to do. That's not that interesting. Right. I want to find out what the law should be, not what judges are going to say that it is. But the more I cover the court, the more of a behavioralist I've, I've become, and the more I teach it also. Um, we read in our course um, a bunch of opinions by Justice Kennedy about gay rights, and then we read Gonzalez versus Carhartt, you know, where he wrote the majority opinion upholding the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act. Uh, and what's the commonality between all of these? Seems to be, you know, Kennedy's emotional juris jurisprudence. <laughs> what, what makes him upset? What gives him sympathy? Who does he have sympathy with? He has sympathy with gay and lesbian Americans. And he has sympathy with um, and finds revolting that a fetus would be aborted through a D&E procedure at 28 weeks. Um, so that's a, you know, that's a highly skeptical, realist, behavioralist conclusion that doesn't speak all that well of the consistency of Justice Kennedy's opinions. But it's, it's a, an argument that I think should not be foreclosed, and it's one that I I've started to come to more as I've learned more about the court and listened to them argue and read their decisions. I think it's actually maybe even a, that's a great point. I, I think it's actually a tiny bit deeper with Justice Kennedy. Growing up in Sacramento, father being a famous, uh, I'm sorry, a very prominent lawyer, um, 
And, and of course, this is well known, but Justice, his father had a very close friend who I think Justice Kennedy considered kind of like an uncle figure, um, who was a closeted gay man who ended up being dean of McGeorge Law School. And Justice, ah, and yeah, and ju- yeah, oh, yeah, oh yeah. And th- this is the only reason same-sex marriage is legal in America today. It's the only reason, I mean, required to be legal. It's the only reason. Kennedy saw the indignity, and I use that word specifically for reasons you understand. He saw mm. the indignity that man had to endure for decades. And I think it had a major effect on him. And he talked about privacy kind of rights and ideas in 2006 to the Canadian Supreme Court. I'm sorry, 19, yeah, 2006, before he was even nominated to the, I'm sorry, yes, um, 1986, excuse me, sorry, mental lapse, 1986, to the Canadian Supreme Court, where you got the sense he was really empathetic to the right to privacy, which would come into play with abortion, obviously. Um, I think political scientists have, I I think sometimes their work is stereotyped unfairly. Um, I don't think they think it's all politics, all the time, every time, 100%. I don't think they think it's all politics. I think they think it's mostly values, of the, which is broader than politics. I don't think Justice Kennedy was acting politically in gay rights cases. I think he saw how terrible it was for a human being mm-hmm. to live this way, and he had the power, Absolutely. so he acted on it. Um, I don't understand why law professors aren't interested in that. <laughs> I'm not. I don't. The other One more example of how my training might have... Um, Help me think about the court at a particular yeah. time. Um, you know, I mentioned I didn't do a lot of the sciencey part of the of the political science. I was more interested in legal philosophy and jurisprudence, and so I read a lot of natural law theorists. And I was really interested when um, Judge Gorsuch was nominated by by Donald Trump to be a justice. That he had you know spent some time at Oxford and written a book. Um, worked with John Finnis, you know, one of the world's leading natural natural lawyers. Mm-hmm. And so I read his book with a great deal of interest and wanted to see, you know, what, what are the implications of someone who is so, um, who associates himself so strongly with the natural law tradition uh, to be on the Supreme Court. And I just wished that in his Senate confirmation hearings, we would have heard more questions <laughs> about that. Because, I mean, the claims that he makes in his book are such that, you know, the entire, he says the entire nation is uh, built on the premise of the sanctity of life, Jeez. the inviolability of life. And so when he's asked in confirmation hearings, you know, can you keep your personal views separate from your views about the law? And he said, yes, of course, I always consult the law. His view of the law is that it is infused with natural justice, natural law, and um, ideas including the sacredness of human life. So this was his book on euthanasia and assisted suicide, but it has obvious implications for, for abortion. Yeah. And he's about to vote in a case very likely um, to overrule Roe versus Wade. And his natural law commitments clearly play a part in that. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's one area where uh, my training was helpful in helping me think about practically where legal and moral and political philosophy meet and what some of the implications might be when that happens. Well, well said. Um, I want to compliment you and then ask you a very selfish question. So um, the compliment is this. Um, I've been reading your writing now since I knew you, and I think you really understand the Roberts Court well. I, I think um, 
uh, you're limited, of course, in being a correspondent, you know, in that part of your life to what you can say and what you can write. But I, I just, I, I'm always impressed by how accurately you get things. That's the compliment. Here's the question. And it's sincere. Okay. I mean, it's really sincere. I, I read everything you write. He, 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 here's the question. So you wrote a book called um, the Dramatic the American Justice 2015, the Dramatic Tenth Term of the Roberts Court. And I almost wrote a, and I, and I love the book. I almost wrote a blog post about this when it came out, but decided I, I would wait. So now I'm going to ask you this question. Now you're going to sock it to me. No, no. I'm going to ask you a question because I really respect your judgment. And, I, and I'm actually thinking about writing, I'm thinking about writing Supreme Myths to the Roberts Court years, um, where you will play a prominent role in much of what I write. But um, has it ever really been the Roberts Court? Except for the two, whatever it was, a year and a half mm-hmm. or two years be, be, before, uh, af- after Kavanaugh and before Justice Ginsburg passed away. I say that because from 2005, when Roberts and six, when Robertson and Alito came on the bench to Justice Kennedy retired, there is no question whose court it was. Uh, Kennedy was in the majority of five, four con law cases, like 97 percent of the time or something. It was not Roberts's court other than the Affordable Care Act case and one case involving judges. I think and judges free speech. I think Kennedy won every time. And now it is not his court either. Now we know there are five justices to his right. I know we're going to technically call it the Roberts court. But is it really right. the Roberts Court? Has it ever been the Roberts Court? Um, I think I might divide the Roberts Court up into three periods. I'm taking notes. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> I think it was the Roberts Court more or less at the beginning for the first seven years or so. Um, parents involved, right? This was his um, – he put his – he wrote the opinion, which – uh, made his version of what the legacy of Brown versus Board of Education is, he made this the law of the land, which is that any classification by race is unconstitutional. It doesn't matter what, um, what the motive is. You know, and there was very powerful dissent from Breyer saying, you know, that's not what Brown v. Board is all about. Brown v. Board is about integration. Right. So that was one moment. Citizens United, um, Shelby County, right? He... He didn't author all those decisions, but he um, he got many of his he got going many of his really strong commitments about race and the First Amendment. Uh, so he was off to a roaring start. And then um, maybe there was a middle period of like a liberal oasis, kind of not th- not th- not thoroughgoingly liberal, but there were you know decisions where he saved the ACA two or three times. Um, we had gay marriage. We had Bostock when, when, when Gorsuch came on. Um, and then we had, as you said, the two-year period after Kennedy left before Barrett came on when he really took control of the court um, and was in the majority most of the time. Or he, he, he had the highest, he was in the majority of the highest percentage of the time. Uh, the DACA case and the citizenship question on the census case and then Justice Barrett joins the court, and he um, doesn't lose his gavel, but I guess he loses his, his rudder. He's unable to keep the court on any sort of an even keel. And so I think we're in that third period now. It started conservative. Next seven years, with some liberal wins, and now it seems that there aren't going to be a whole lot of those. There are going to be a lot of six to three and some five to four yeah. conservative wins in, in the near future. I do want to say something about parents involved. Um, 
everybody remembers Justice Roberts' famous soundbite, the way to stop discrimination based on race is to stop discriminating based on race. And his complete, mis- I'm going to be nicer than you because I'm not a correspondent for The Economist, um, his complete and 100% mischaracterization of Brown versus Board of Education. You don't have to respond to that. Um, but I wrote a whole article on that before I became a correspondent. Okay, so good. Okay, good. That one up. So we agree on that. Um, but what I do want to say, though, is technically, and, may- and maybe technically doesn't matter. I'm, I'll concede that point. But technically, it is not Justice Kennedy's opinion that's the opinion of the court and parents involved. It is Justice Kennedy's concurring opinion because he's the fifth vote. It was narrower. And Kennedy says in his concurring opinion, this case cannot be decided based on the idea that the way to stop discriminating based on race is to stop discrimination based on race. So my, my point there is even when Roberts was writing majority opinions sometimes, he would be undercut by Kennedy, you know, writing a concurring opinion that became really technically the law of the land. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. And that's a very good point. And that particular issue, I think we're going to see back at the court next year. Yes. You know, we had uh, a shadow docket case involving Thomas Jefferson High School in Fairfax. uh, And the question was whether their new admissions policy violated the Equal Protection Clause. What What does their new admissions policy do? Well, it's designed to increase diversity, um, but it does not have any race consciousness within it. There, there are no, um, there are no categories based on race. It's all about trying to bring diversity through other means, very much in line with what Justice Kennedy argued in his concurring opinion in Parents Involved. Now, there were three justices who would have um, blocked Jesus. that admissions policy. You can guess. Which three? Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, and Alito. So I think there are three justices who want to turn, for sure, who want to turn to the right further on race and ban not just uh, any official categorization by race, but any race consciousness that has an effect, that has the effect of um, limiting uh, or changing a a racial balance of of a school. Um, and it remains to be seen about um, Kavanaugh and Barrett on that question. We really don't know much about those two when it comes to race and whether Roberts is going to you know, push ahead and fully realize his premise from parents involved, which, as you suggest, Kennedy undercut a bit with his concurrence. I have a wild and crazy prediction about Justice Barrett on this. And, and just yesterday I got in trouble yet again for criticizing Justice Barrett on all kinds of grounds um, that I won't go into with I you. I think I saw that tweet. Yeah, I don't want to put you on the yeah. spot. I've, I've, I've actually deleted it for unrelated reasons. Um, I do stand by it, but I'm not going to put you in that position. Um, no one's been more critical of Justice Barrett's assent, both to the Seventh Circuit and the Supreme Court, than I've been. Um, so, so what I'm about to say should be filtered through that lens. I actually think she might surprise on affirmative action. I think she might be O'Connor-like on affirmative action. Um, I, I, it's more intuition than anything based on fact. But I just have a feeling that that she's going to go with kind of the O'Connor, Breyer, I mean, Breyer and, and Gratz for some reason, but, 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 but the O'Connor mm-hmm. view on, and Powell view on affirmative action. We'll see. I, I hope I'm right about that. I, I may well be wrong. But I, I, you think I'm crazy? I have no intuition about that. Yeah. Um, 
the only I would just bring the realist point in that even if she does join the exactly. three liberals on that, it'll still be a five to four with Roberts on the other side. That's exactly right, and that's why she's going to do one of the reasons she's going to do it. I think. I think they all no. they all want to. So that's why I, I think. Okay, now I'm just. Don't you? This is not about you. It's about me. Sorry. Um, I think that's why Gorsuch did Bostock. I really do. I think he wanted to do it early. I think he wanted to get his credibility out early, and now he can mm. do anything he wants because everybody will say. He's not just conservative. Look at that opinion. I, these are human beings like you and me. You know, I, I have tenure. I have, I'm a full professor. I'm a chair professor. I plan that. Like I, 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 mean, I couldn't control it, but I, I plan my career a certain way. To think they don't do that? I'm sorry. That was a rant. But I just, you don't have to comment. But I just think that's obvious to me. And uh, that's why Gorsuch did that. I'm very confident of that. Um, Steve, one last question. I'm sure he sees it as a side benefit. Whether it's the real impetus for yeah. his opinion, I'm not sure. I don't know if we'll ever know. Fair enough. Fair one enough. last question, and then you have to get your, your, your daughter, and I have to go get my daughter. Um, okay. Do you have a favorite justice? I want to ask you for your least favorite. Do you have a favorite justice? <laughs> yeah, I won't answer the least favorite. Yeah. Yeah. They all have their virtues, don't mm-hmm. they? Just You can't name your favorite child. They don't all have their virtues. Sorry. Yes. Um, I will I will name some favorites in different ways. Sure. So Justice Kagan, you know, I, I mentioned her. Yeah. Um, she made an, an impression on me right away when I first sat down next to Garrett Epps um, in the uh, in in the press box watching watching that first argument. She has, uh, I mean, just an uncanny ability to chew up and spit out lawyers when she wants to, and even sometimes to manhandle fellow justices. Um, I think less the current lineup, but there was uh, in Masterpiece Cake Shop, if you read her concurrence and you put it side by side with Justice Kennedy's majority, you'll find some pretty tricky things she does to, um, to interpret that opinion and narrow the um, implications right. of it. Um, so I, I just find I find her writing clearly uh, the most direct and persuasive and accessible on the court. Everybody talks, all the justices say they, they like to write in an accessible way that everyone can understand. Um, but I think few of them accomplish it, and uh, none of them accomplish it nearly as well um, as Justice Kagan. Chief Justice Roberts is maybe a, a close second. He's also an excellent writer. Um, so, yes, uh, there's a warm place in my heart for Justice Kagan. Justice Breyer, you know, I was, I was actually moved to the last oral argument that he took part in at the end of April. The, the way that he puts himself out there and doesn't, you know, yeah. script anything yeah. um, and maybe takes up a few too many pages in the oral argument transcripts. But his, his orientation on the court has been, Let's find a way to make this work out, a way that makes sense. Right. You know, he, we talk endlessly about his pragmatism, but that was really thorough. That was a thorough part of who he is as a justice and has been as a judge for decades. Yeah. And I think we need more of that type of orientation on the court, which is not ideological. But, I mean, clearly he has some ideological Right. perspectives that shine right. through from time to time, his, his dissent in Glossop versus Gross, where he calls for the death penalty to, to, be, to be reconsidered. He has his principles, and he doesn't shy away from them. But overwhelmingly, he's about trying to make the law work, work out for most people and without disrupting the legal system unduly. 
And boy, we could use more of that kind of stability-enhancing yeah. orientation in a justice well said. Uh, today. Well said. I, I think he is obviously transparent and honest. Like, I think that comes through no matter what side you're on, I, you know, no matter what it is, he cares about trying to get something that everyone can get a hold of. And I think that comes through. When Dahlia was here, she said what she loved best about Kagan, well, many things about Kagan, was how she writes um, her opinions. Imagine if you were this person ah, in the third. All the time. Always in the second person. Yeah. Yes. And Which is the most engaging way to write. Yes. Yes. If you can, um, if you can put the person in a position they can actually yes. imagine, and yes. her opinions yes. do that. Yes, and she does the same thing in, in oral arguments. Yeah, yeah, that's a great skill. I did, I try to do that with my students. I don't do it any one fiftieth as good as, as well as Kagan does. But I, I try to. If you're that, if you're the judge deciding this case, and you have this, you know, I think that's just an effective way of. Anyway, Steve, thank you so much. It's been, it, this was a, I love talking to you. I, we've never really talked at length in person before, and I really enjoyed this. And, and thank you. Can so I much. add one more thing yeah. about Justice Sotomayor? Yeah. yeah. Um, she's another justice who, who keeps it real in a way, yep. and, you know, like Breyer, but she keeps it real in her own way. And the way that she sort of conveys the id of the left on the court, I yep. think— we would miss it so much if it wasn't there, because there is so much id on the right, so much unrestrained, um, you know, here's my position on this, that if we didn't have a counterbalance, it would, uh, it would be an odd court. It's, it's already imbalanced enough. But without Sotomayor's voice in an oral argument and her dissents, um, it, it would be um, all the more, you know, listing to the right. That, that's a great point. And I also think her, she's worked really hard to get out in the world on Sesame Street or whatever. And I think she's a fantastic, there's some things about her I could criticize, don't, but she's a fantastic role model for girls. And, and I think incredibly. that's... Incredibly. Yes. And I brought my students to meet her once and she was just incredibly generous and oh, that's nice. um, terrific in the crowd. Well, Steve, we need to get together in person one day. I'm going to make that happen at some point in our lives, I hope. Sure. We both have busy lives and busy family lives. But um, thank you so much for doing this. I really enjoyed it. Learned a lot, as always, from you. And um, I want people to read. I, I know The Economist is behind a, you know, I, I have a membership, but behind a, a, pay, a paywall. Um, so it's hard to retweet and stuff like that because it's behind a paywall. But it's worth your money, people. <laughs> it's worth your money just to read Steve. So if you care about the Supreme Court, Spend what it takes and read Steve's work. It's and this really week's issue, sorry to, for the plug, yeah, but no, I no. have to say I've been writing for 10 years and I have my first cover story. Congrats. In this week's issue about the legitimacy crisis at the Supreme Court, which I've been working on for a couple of months, but then the Dobbs leak happened right. and it was the perfect time to get it shaped up and published. It's a great piece. Everybody should read it. But I, don't want to, but I want to also say everybody should read all your pieces and the America, and I think we'd have better conversations in America if more people read your pieces on the Supreme Court. Thank you That's so much for being generous, here. Eric. Thank you. It's true. It's thank you so much. Terrific talk. Thank you for the conversation and for having me. My pleasure, and um, I hope to see you soon. Take care. Take care. <laughs>